Welcome to Sense of Security, a podcast at the intersection of global health and national security. I'm Dr. Jason Rayo, Executive Director of Health Security Partners. In each episode, I'll be discussing some of the most pressing health security issues of our time with leaders in the field. In this episode, I'll be sitting down with Dr. Joseph Fair, a virologist, epidemiologist, and entrepreneur, to talk about his experience around the globe that helped him prepare for COVID-19, the future of our preparations in the US, and the need for the government to put more emphasis on biodefense. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining uh, our podcast, Sense of Security. We are super excited today to have Dr. Joseph Fair join. Uh, you know, I say this a lot, but, you know, we managed to get an old friend and amazing scientist to um, come talk to us today about, you know, COVID, um, the fight against Mother Nature, the evolution of microbes. And um, Joe, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. I am uh, really happy to be on the podcast and I've been following it for quite some time now. So I'm really excited to have this talk. Yeah, super cool. And, you know, I can remember like it was yesterday. I was a er very early career bureaucrat sitting at the State Department and somebody said, hey, there's this there's this virologist, there's a scientist and he's an entrepreneur, but he's also the real thing. you got to meet, you know, Joseph Fair. <laughs> and and at that time you were known as the virus hunter and like all this stuff. But, you know, you've spent your career essentially trying to get ahead of what we're now experiencing. And yeah, in fact, if you if you remember correctly, I think we might have both been in government at that time. Yeah. You know, most people don't remember this about me, but during graduate school, my very first year of graduate school, I had applied for the National Defense Science Fellowship and, um, you know, which made you uh, gave you a special privileges in the DOD as a scientist after you left and. I'll never forget getting denied and just be so being so downtrodden about it. And then the very next week, I get a you know an email saying, "Well, we denied you on purpose because we were inventing a new program and we think it's better." And you know, here it is, the DoD Smart Program. So you know, I was in DoD as a graduate student, and then the day I graduated, I moved into full civilian, you know, DoD at USAMRID. So you and I were around in government at the same time, we just hadn't met. And uh, I remember the same, same about yourself, of yeah. everyone saying we should meet, and since we have, it's been epic. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's, it's sort of like, you know, this kindred spirit that now that we're in, in the shock of actually living through a pandemic, yeah. Yeah. We can look back to those days and say, you know, we were worried about hematagglutin and neuraminidase yes. mixing somewhere in Southeast yeah. Asia and coming up yeah. with the next pandemic flu. Um, yeah. I don't, you know, I didn't personally think a lot about coronavirus back then, um, but you did. You thought a lot about hemorrhagic fevers. You're the real deal. I mean, you're a virologist. Um, you're an epidemiologist. You trained in in New Orleans, which I'm going to ask you later about. Um, but the thing that I think the audience should appreciate about you is that before, you know, people recognize the biological threats that we faced, you were in, you were deep in the field building in particular laboratory capacity to yeah. 
test, diagnose, and treat folks or, or have a, a capability alongside a hospital. And so, I, you know, before we jump into COVID, which I know everyone wants to hear about, you know, the mutants and, and the mutations and, and when we're going to reopen schools and all that, I actually want just for a minute, tell us, tell us about your early work in Africa and how that is, you know, sort of informed you and the scientific community as to what we should be doing now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I had a really, really, really non-traditional path. You know, I uh, I went to Jesuit schools a lot of my life, including a Jesuit university. And originally, I actually wanted to be a Jesuit priest. Um, you know, many of the, uh, the world's greatest historical scientists were actually Jesuit priests. And I thought that that was my calling. And then thankfully, you know, towards the end uh, of that, of my four years, the priest recognized that uh, you know <laughs> I I could make it I could make it as far as memorizing what I need to but you know it might be hard to keep all the all the vows of a, of a Catholic priest in today's society and I agreed with them however you know if you've ever gone to a Jesuit institution you know they'll teach you finding your mission in life is yeah. the first thing that you have to do and it's something that you constantly should do throughout your life is find your mission. And so I'll never forget that, you know, Bishop telling me that. And then, um, you know, I think it was the very next day that there was a seminar from a person, you know, that was talking about SIV mutating into HIV and how that happened in the Central Africa. And, you know, it, it, not in any particular country, but that we knew of at least three separate introductions of HIV into humans. And he told me, you know, what that, why he thought that was, of course, there was a lot of very negative stereotypes out there for just such a long time about, sure. you know, how HIV came into humans. And once he explained it, you know, scientifically, how it came through animals and through a cultural be behavioral that just happens to be different than our own, but because there are more people, fewer resources, you know, humans are coming into rarer species more often than they used to, frankly, just to, just to be a... Yeah. Uh, you know, black and white about it. We're coming into contact with animals that we didn't, sure. we didn't normally have that much contact with. And, you know, in that case, uh, monkeys and non-human primates and chimps and things like that are often kept as pets. We don't really think about that here in the U.S. You know, a few people have pet monkeys, but it's not, it's not advised that you do so, I should say right. that. Yeah. And so we would go through and just bleeding pets and, you know, looking for SIV or looking at people that has had SIV, not HIV. So they were still carrying the monkey form of the virus and looking at them. How are they suppressing this? How are the monkeys suppressing this? How is the SIV not turning into HIV or how is it turning into HIV? And it was while I was there, you know, really a couple of books inspired me to become a virologist. And I'd always been fascinated in virology. I did my honors undergraduate thesis on HTLV and uh, its cellular um, entry receptor. But um, having spent that time in the lab and having worked on, you know, entry receptors and things like that, I knew I really wanted to be a field virologist. Yeah. And so... When I heard this guy talk about everything he was doing in Africa and, uh, you know, the partnerships that he had set up, I must have written him, you know, three or four times. And uh, finally, we ended up talking enough and uh, he sent me as a liaison to the Pasteur Institute. Uh, when I was there, I, you know, the deal was I got to train in Paris for nearly a year. 
And that was something that, you know, to this day still benefits my life because I trained under Francoise Barry Stenozzi, who, who earlier had discovered HIV and was a Nobel Prize winner. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, Francoise then sent me on to Africa, which led me to Cameroon and spending a year there uh, and then Gabon and spending a year there. And then it was while in Gabon that I met, you know, really my hero, uh, C.J. Peters, um, who had been, uh, you know, if you remember the atrociously put together film, but still exciting movie <laughs> outbreak, uh, yeah. that would have been Dustin Hoffman's character. But I can assure you he's a lot more politically incorrect and he doesn't look like <laughs> Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> um, that being said, you know, he took me under his wing and, you know, we really just had, uh, he told me if I ever wanted to really move forward in the field and make a bigger impact that I needed to get my doctorate. And uh, I guess like three weeks later, I was back in the United States with him and uh, started at Texas A&M. And sorry, I apologize, uh, University of Texas Medical Branch, rather. And mm -hmm. then realized that, you know, New Orleans was really where I like to go uh, to live in the South, I should say. And Tulane, you know, was actually founded as a school of public health and infectious disease. Not many people even realize that, but um, we were not founded as a university. We were founded as a medical school spe specialized on tropical medicine and infectious disease because most of the workers for the Panama Canal came from New Orleans. And so everyone was dying of yellow fever and malaria. So we worked together with Walter Reed and uh, the found and Tulane, the man, uh, putting together money to train people and to save people. So that's why Tulane School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine uh, is so well known. And so I did my degree back at Tulane. I, um, I ended up doing a few little different things. I asked them if they would allow me to be the first person to pursue a joint PhD and PH, uh, the PhD in molecular biology and the MPH in tropical medicine epidemiology. They had never had anyone do it before, but that being said, when I sat down with them and, you know, kind of went through the classes, I said, look, you can scratch this off, you can scratch this off. Yeah, right. And uh, it kind of made sense. And, you know, sometimes you can't be pushy, you know, with things like that uh, because you're asking a favor and you want to be innovative and do something new. But just like there's, there's no bureaucracy in academics, so exactly know. right. And just like with any a grant or anything else, you have to prove why it is that you need this, right? <laughs> and so right. I was able to do so, and I have to tell you, I am uh, really happy I did um, because you know it's a very different tract of education. It's much more utilitarian. Uh, it teaches you a lot more about engagement with the public, which, as you've seen with you know COVID nineteen. Engagement with the public is a very key element, which scientists are not taught taught to speak. They're taught to speak to one another, but they're yeah. not taught to speak to the public. Yeah. And the public, I can assure you in so many ways, is, is picking apart every single word you're saying, especially if they are understressed and their economic viability and their viability altogether in some cases depends on what you're saying. So And so... Yes. Yeah. Please go ahead. No, I let, let me just stop you there because, you know, you're, you're I'm really glad we covered sort of your path because, you know, the short my short question was going to be what what sparked what inspired you to do this? And I think you covered it in 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 some sense by 
by showing, by illustrating your mentors, et cetera. But, you know, my mom might be one of the only people listening to the podcast. And so mom, hi. And second, SIV, SIV is the simian, right? Am I right? Immunodeficiency. So before we knew what HIV was, we needed to work on SIV. And and the reason I do that isn't to be cheesy, but is to highlight the fact that Joe covered a really interesting topic, which is climate change and, and, you know, man's uh, demand, uh, humankind's, I should say, demand on moving into forests and environments that, that we didn't have 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Um, for agriculture, for fuel production, and the demand in the world economy has forced animals and people to be even closer together. And we know that most of these, um, that that Mother Nature's way ahead of us, and and we know viruses and bacteria have been around a lot longer than we have. And and so we're forcing the jump, right? We're forcing the jump. Yeah, exactly. Between one to another one. And just to put a fine point on it, and then I'm going to turn it back over to you. There is no better, well, arguably I came from Hopkins, so we can debate it later, but there is very (laughs) few better places on the planet that you could, you have gone after your field work than Tulane. And people don't also don't appreciate that. So having come out of Tulane, having done your field work and having looked into zoonosis, which is that jump between animal and humans, I think that primed you to really be, you know, someone that that had a, a the breadth and depth of appreciation, not just for, you know, we've had some medical doctors on here. We had Peter Hotez, you know, we're going to have Callahan on here soon, a medical doctor with- That should be fun. Tell everyone to drink a lot of coffee before Mike yeah. gives yeah. the podcast. Believe, believe me, I know. <laughs> but what we have here is is a literally card-carrying virologist, right? Like we have someone who actually understands, and, you know, what he said briefly isn't trivial, that- he got a joint degree in both the molecular biology as well as the epidemiology. So, so we're looking at both the mechanisms of transfer as well as, you know, how it affects a population. And so you're sort of, you know, I, I dare I say, uniquely poised with your your background to sort of understand how new bugs come um, out of the ground into into animals and into humans. Thank you. And, uh, you know, one more I'll add to that. And it's it's actually, you know, one I, I probably would have been ashamed to tell you about when I was young. But to be honest, I grew up in one of the poorest areas in one of the of, of the United States. Most people would driving through there wouldn't believe they are in the United States. But growing up in the poverty of Appalachia, you know, uniquely prepared me for the poverty that I was about to encounter in yeah. places that I work. And I find that even the best of us that want to do this work, the hardest part is maybe not even what we're seeing. It is you, it is what you are surrounded by, which is abject poverty. And so that really makes you realize a lot of things. That being said, Jason, I will tell you this. Yeah. Something that I never thought I would see is, you know, being scientists, the definition of science is, you know, identifying a pattern, being able to replicate that pattern. Um, I have noticed that with outbreaks, there are patterns that you cannot escape, no matter if it's in the Congo or the United mm. States or if it's a pandemic. Mm. 
people, there is a human consciousness and reaction to being, you know, under lockdown and in pandemic conditions. And and, and by that, Joe, like do you that, mean like yeah. like some of the things you talked about earlier that I want to pick back on, like yeah. stigma, culture? Stigma, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people not believing it's real, a lot right. of going uh, you know no matter what and this has been in every outbreak i've ever been in it's always been politicized it's always been seen as like your you know your party uh, screwed this up or no your party didn't prepare for this um and you know seeing it as more of a divider of people it divides people very quickly and i can tell you what divides people very quickly is not having information and not yeah. communicating with them. So if let me you communicate everything you know, and frankly, even more importantly, everything you don't know. Yes. Daily, people have much more confidence that you know what you're doing. And in the absence of that, that's why the press conferences were so important and they weren't jokes. And we really needed to know the right answers in, under the last, last administration is... You had no idea if you were hearing what was actually happening or not. There were very few specifics. Um, and, you know, you're getting, I'm not saying the new administration is perfect, you know, and I, I knew people in both of them. And yeah. frankly, I think that's important to point out, Jason, you know, nobody in that last administration, you know, and I'm not talking about appointees or anything like that, but, you know, nobody in as a government employee went in there thinking I'm going to do harm to America by the way I'm doing this. Right. You know, they can only do so much. And you and I both know how hard that work is. And you, we, we all have orders. And yeah. so we carry out our orders. So I hope people don't, you know, hold that against them in history just because I've been there myself. The other point being uh, is, you know, this new administration seems to have empowered their new team. And it's all about empowering and trusting your team. And the team seems to be working really well together. And that offers hope and uh, information uh, gives people hope. You can't give people an exact timeline. And I think that's really the hardest thing for people to accept in a, in a real epidemic or pandemic is they want a timeline. Even if you said six months, it would still be, okay, I know if I can make it from now to six months, I got it. Yeah. Or if you said now three months, I know I can make it. But right now, we don't have a time we can tell you. And I think that that is really stressing a lot of people out. You know, I'm sure certain you're familiar with there's over a 50% rise in domestic violence and things that just stress you out when you know yeah. you don't have money. You're stuck at home altogether where you wouldn't be normally. You're a parent. Right. You know, Jason, I'm sure that's presented unique challenges of its own. No, none um, whatsoever, Joe. None <laughs> whatsoever. And, you know, typically I travel a lot from my work. And, you know, while I try to lower my global foot carbon footprint, um, you know, there's no sufficing me travel traveling to, you know, remote Congo for Ebola. I just can't do that. So um, remotely, rather. And so, you know, these none of us want this to happen, I guess, is my point. And um no. Those who politicized this before, it was almost like they think, you know, one side wanted this to happen and the other side didn't want it to happen. 
and I can tell you for certain, everybody's miserable on both sides. <laughs> Nobody no, I, wants this to happen, and we uh, we all want to move forward. Absolutely. You've said so many things that, that make me want to ask a, a, a few more questions, but there's one sort of hot topic that I do, you know, I, I want to sort of open the box for you because I think you're extremely well positioned. Let's just put our science hat hats on for a second, and that is... You mentioned earlier that you you were a properly trained Jesuit, you know, you were in line to be a Jesuit priest and have, you know, I live a couple blocks from Georgetown. So I, I know, you know, I know about the culture. I know what that means. And we've in which I think if I last recall, they're they're part of the Catholic Church. Yes. And uh, and they've come out today with over the last day or two with challenges over vaccines so maybe don't take them because the origins of the some of the newer vaccines may have come from fetal tissue could you could you just talk from the science church i don't think that is from the vatican itself i did see that headline and i granted i have not read it yet myself so to give you fully accurate time, uh, to give you a fully accurate answer on you know what the church said or what anybody else said, I need to look that up. But we uh, could, but we could, but we could, yes. we could take a step back together. You and I could take a step back together and say vaccines, be, because you and I have also experienced. Yes. I, I lived in South Asia um, yes. during my duty for the State Department, and there was a lot of. Um, conspiracy about yes. the origins of vaccines being generated from pork. Yes. Right, and right. and therefore you shouldn't take this vaccine for polio because you know the derivatives somehow were you know used animals and and so I wanted to take a step back and just say I know this is a, this is a very complicated question but mm. I mean as a virologist yes we are not using fetal tissue and or pork to generate these vaccines not in these particular ones and you know even if it was it would have been you know stem cells and i i really don't even think that was involved and you know each one of these things when we talk about them you know everything from you know contraception versus prevention of hiv transmission yeah, You know, they really are two different things in the eyes of the church now. Yeah. So, you know, I think the church um, has played both horrific roles in science as well as truly astounding roles in science. Yeah. You know, just the number of craters on the moon named after Jesuit astronomers is absolutely incredible. So, you know, it's not an organization that moves quickly. Um, you're going to have other religious groups that claim exemptions. That was already a major problem here for us in the U.S. with just normal yeah. vaccines that have been around for 50 years in some cases. So will we ever convince those people? I'm not sure. However, I think if they refuse this vaccination, you know, they should remain cut off from the rest of, you know, society in terms of schools, uh, anywhere that virus can be spread to an elderly or at-risk person, which is anywhere people congregate. Um, people need to know that, that, that they don't have COVID. And, you know, I don't know 
I'm not talking about necessarily ostracizing them, that, but sure, this is of one course. of those things where this is for the greater good. You know, we have lost more than half a you know, more than 500 million people, Americans, and we're going to lose a lot more before this is over. And so I don't think it's asking too much. Uh, we'll have known more of the, you know, maybe not long-term effects, but a little bit longer term effects by that point, because, you know, these vaccines will have been in, by the summer, these vaccines will have been in, you know, a hundred millions of people for a number of months now. And we'll yeah. really be able to tell, are there any wide scale mass, you know, vaccinations, adverse reactions to mass vaccinations? And so um, yes, please. Let me, let me ask you then let, let's shift because what you just said reminded me that we are a world at war. And people aren't necessarily treating it that way. And, you know, they think, oh, we're on this downhill slope, the ski slope that, you know, it's going to get better over time and the sun will come up and everything's going to be fine. But it turns out we have these variants. And yeah. by the way, I think it's so funny. They call them the UK variant or the Australian variant or whatever variant. These variants are circulating. Yeah. They don't need a visa, yeah. as you well know. Yeah. You know, they are global variants. They, they do have accents, though. That must be it. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, the point is, is that if we don't get ahead of our vaccination effort and really commit right. to it, right. we, we, you know, the threat is real. Um, could you just yes. briefly, briefly talk to that? And then I want to move to like a happier topic. Then I want to ask you about like, what do we do next? But yeah. I do, I did want to ask you, Joe, what, what do you think about the fact that the, the globe is not like Texas today removed all restrictions, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the globe is not totally appreciating the fact that this is, you know, World War II plus. Yeah. And I think, you know, when everything I've read historically about 1918, they experienced the same more or less, you know, um, mentality at that time. The first wave really wasn't that deadly. So everyone said, hey, you know, this sucks, but, you know, it happens. Right. But then the second wave that came back much later, which was from a variant. <laughs> yeah did wipe out, you know, anywhere from 22 to 55 million people. And that was well before air travel and, you know, cargo ship travel and trade as it stands now and tourism and everything else. And, you know, most of those things are shut down anyway, but you know, a lot of them are still active, as active as they can be. And as we're watching, the virus is still being actively spread. And, you know, will our vaccines protect against those variants? I have no idea. I hope so. And I right. hope that we don't have to undergo this again and that it's a much more lethal variant that comes out. But this does need to be a wake-up call for everyone. This is not a one-time thing. And, you know, I hate the analogy of infectious disease, outbreaks, epidemics, pandemics to natural disasters for one reason. In a natural disaster response, it's usually just that, a response. The natural yeah. disaster has stopped you are responding to what happened. And the only one that I will allow an analogy to is a forest fire, because this is a natural disaster that is still fighting you while you're also still trying to recover from it. 
And sometimes doing both of them at the same time is an absolutely overwhelming uh, activity that literally takes all hands on deck. And yeah. if we don't have every state masking up, if we have states now saying, you know, to, to heck with that, you know, a, a driver, a truck driver going through that state, you know, is going, not going to abide by that law in that state, but the next state over they will. But does that help after they've gotten it and then taken it home to their family? And then we have a whole new cluster of cases. That's why it's important, you know, if we're going to implement some rules, let's do it everywhere. I don't think wearing a mask in, say, a place of, you know, where um, other people are congregating is too much to ask. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that we should implement some sort of, you know, vaccination card. And I think those vaccination cards could be the key to really reopening up business. Sure. And, it, you know, the, the sooner you get your vaccination, the sooner you can start shopping and doing, you know, living your life like normal again. Um, yeah because you have a vaccination card. So um, I think that might be an incentive to do it. I, I think that there has been good outreach to you know communities that uh, traditionally are afraid of this because you know maybe they weren't included in the clinical trials and things like that. Yeah. So I think you know those communities have reason to have doubt. Um, but I hope that you know that we've shown and are showing, through, you know, government efforts and by we, you know, I mean the public health community, not you and I specifically, yeah. but the public health community are showing that, you know, these vaccines are intended for all. Yeah. And I mean, so like no BS, right. You know, we know, yeah. you know, you know, we had Jawad Ashkar on, we had uh, others who reminded us that even before we had germ theory, uh, we knew how to control cholera. Right. Um, when HIV AIDS became obviously a, a global uh, threat, we once we understood its route of transmission, we we were able to curb HIV AIDS through behavioral. Absolutely. Yes. And, and so I think what you're saying is that we we can do that now. We can yes. do that right now. And yeah. and and the end potentially is near in that we've got, you know, five or six wonderful vaccines on the way. Um, so this has taught us new ways to make vaccines. Now, yeah. what I really hope will happen is that, you know, there is a kind of permanent manual of these are our assets. These are how our assets can work together. Uh, this is how much time it takes us to stand up an asset to produce a new product you know, that type of thing. And that's yeah. what's going to prepare us, you know, really for the next one that happens. And there will be the next one, you know. Um, and the best thing we can do is prepare. We can't prevent them altogether. We can do things to greatly reduce our chances of an epidemic or pandemic. And that has to do with our farming practices, to our business practices, to our cultural practices. But yeah, that's going to take a lot longer than it is if we just, you know, get some really good surveillance going up that, you know, it costs less than a missile defense system every year. Yeah. Globally. And, and, and pol politics aside, how we define national security has changed and people now understand that, you know. Yes. Um, we, it's been a gross 
underinvestment, yeah. not just in yeah. human health and public health, but in animal health, you know? Yeah, we, absolutely. Yeah. And you right. and I both spent time in government, Jason. That's where we met. You know, I was at the Defense Department. Uh, you were at the State Department. And I can say to you now that I, I see epidemics and pandemics. And even though that's what I worked in at DOD, even then we didn't consider them that big of a threat, that threat. We considered them a major threat, but not that big. But, you know, you look at what happened during COVID-19 and we had at least two or three joint yeah. chiefs that were, you know, taken out by COVID-19 and yeah. at least working from home for some time. So no, that goes to show you no one is immune to a biological attack. And the, so the, the if anything, we pay so. too a little attention to to biodefense and we need to reinvigorate that, that reinvigorate those efforts. That doesn't mean you know, building giant new buildings, but maybe it means funding, you know, explorative new research into where these things come from, how do we stop them at their source, and how do we yeah. rapidly make countermeasures and diagnostics to them no matter where they come from. I always draw on this analogy, and I apologize for those people that listen to the show often, but I, I, I say, you know, 100 years ago, we had fires all over America, and they would burn down entire towns. So what did we do? We built the fire department. We built signs yeah. over the walls, you know, and then we, you know, you pressed a button and the sprinklers came on. And now we don't use that stuff too much, but it's there. Um, and so, uh, you know, you know, investing in a, in a public health. Um, so, so let me transition then to, to my final question. Well, I have one question about the culture of New Orleans, which I'll, I'll save for the very end. Jason, could I talk? Could I talk to you about your last point about the fire department? Yeah, please. Because that's one that you know I use all the time. Is you know, so I'm I'm always amazed at how very few Americans know that we have a uniformed public health system, and that we are the only country in the world that has that. And you know, it is not under the Department of Defense. Yep. It answers to the Secretary of Health and Human Services, but you are um, in the same. Uh, quote unquote, boat <laughs> as the Defense Department. So you get to use DOD resources, even though you are an HHS officer. And one thing that I'm really pleased that has come out of COVID-19 that I learned from the pre the, the previous um, Surgeon General is that there has, has been you know money set aside, at least in that first trillion, for a reserve force of outbreak responders um, for the public health service. And as you know, that is something I have advocated for myself many, many years now. Absolutely. And so, Absolutely. you know, that, that workforce is going to be essential. And uh, I hope politically we keep that, that mandate in there and that we, uh, we build that fire brigade that you're talking about for outbreaks. Please go ahead. Well, I want I want Joseph Fair part two because I think you and I have just stumbled upon a topic we both care a lot about and might be a little tricky to well impossible to cover right now. But you know the disconnect between the National Security Council, the Food and Drug Administration, the CDC, which is technically under the the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, and the White House, and and why all of those things are they are distinct for good reason, yes. but coordinated um yes. is critical together. <laughs> right i mean the fact the fact that we have to get them all together to to agree upon something and you know in a time of war you know yeah. i wasn't alive then but 
believe me, I have a feeling they they put their heads together and said, hey, let's solve this, you know, this clear and present danger. That's what we currently have. So I think when it comes to public health, what you're saying is we really could bring these this national public service together and and do a bit of a better job. Absolutely. You know, everything from the logistics and, you know, setting up field hospitals, that's what the military does best. Yes. We're going to replace that with the public health service. But being in a uniform service, you know rank, you know structure, you know uniform command, and you know public health. And it makes it so much easier to work together. And I think, you know, we should edge towards that mentality of military and civilian cooperation to combat these things. because. Like we said, it's only going to get bigger. Okay, my final question, Joe. Um, I know you have deep roots in Louisiana, in and around New Orleans. You you took me through an antique shop that I believe your family yes. owned, and it, it was it's super cool on a cobblestone street. You know, not far from the the most historic. It was in the French Quarter. Um, but let, let me just ask you quickly, for the listener that has endured this interview, where should should they – what is a Sazerac and where should they get one? <laughs> oh, my goodness. You would ask me that. Um, Sazerac is a whiskey-based cocktail. But, you know, if you associate it with uh, – if you associate a mint julep with Kentucky, which is where I'm from – a Sazerac is what you would associate with New Orleans or a Negroni to a San Francisco. So it's a, it's a whiskey cocktail with some sugar and orange and other things in there. I'm not quite sure all of it, Jason, just you would put me on the spot. No, I'm not, I'm not putting you on the spot, but I just want to I want folks to get to just a general sense because, you know. Yeah, what, but you got you to gotta go to someplace nice and have a great Sazerac in New Orleans, the Roosevelt Hotel. Uh, you know, that's one of the best hotels in the city. It's uh, it was it's famous. It's heyday was the early swinging 20s and they rebuilt it to that exact decorum. And so when you feel when you're in there, you feel like you should be in a black tie and uh, listening to something that F. Scott Fitzgerald would be in there too. So, uh, you know, I would recommend having it at the, at the Roosevelt or out on a nice sunny bar in the French Quarter somewhere. Well, I would say, uh, you know, honestly, and I and I mean this to anyone listening, Joseph Fair is one of those guys that, you know, if you're interested in public health, if you're interested in global health security, you know, you could email him, you can look him look him up on LinkedIn and shoot him a note. He's going to answer you and um, he's a great contact to have. And separately, he probably would take you out to uh, have your first Sazerac. So, um, Joe, I can't thank you enough for your time tonight. It's been, you know, there's been so many um, topics that we covered that I wanted to do longer, but I, I felt I needed to cut short because, you know, podcasts can only be so long. But but thank Likewise. you so much. And if, if you're willing to do it, let's do part two in a little bit. Yeah, and absolutely. Happy and to do so. Let's talk about like the mutants and what where they've gone and, and how things are evolving. I mean, we'd I'd really yeah. love to have your professional um, interpretation. Absolutely. I would love to do so. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. If you want to see how we're working to improve health security around the world, 
please visit us at healthsecuritypartners.org. This has been Sense of Security with Dr. Jason Rayo.